A story is told about William Barclay, one of the 20th century's most beloved New Testament scholars, who sometimes took controversial positions on the scriptures. A lively and colorful commentator, he provided a series, a popular series for the BBC. And in an interview following the airing of this series, he related the experience of knowing God's sustaining strength through a harrowing time when his 21-year-old daughter drowned in a yachting accident. A listener, angry over something Barclay had said in his program, wrote an anonymous letter saying, Dear Dr. Barclay, I know now why God killed your daughter. It was to save her from being corrupted by your heresies. But Barclay knew that God did not go around drowning people's daughters in order to punish them. Had he known the writer's address, he said that he would have written back in words that John Wesley had said to someone, your God is my devil. In 1995, the highly respected Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. He came to mind this week with the release of a new movie about the Entebbe raid in 1976 that was a successful counter-terrorism rescue of a hijacked airliner. Rabin had ordered the raid. Eventually, he was re-elected prime minister on a platform embracing the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and became a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. One wonders how these last decades would have evolved had this courageous politician survived. The assassin was a Jewish religious zealot who asserted that he had served his people and his country when he killed Rabin following a peace rally. In making the sentence of life imprisonment, the judge declared, there is no greater desecration of God's name than to justify this murder as a religious commandment or a moral mission. And in response, the assassin self-righteously stated, everything I did was for the God of Israel. A poignant example of our human tendency to assign God to our own depraved motives. Now some pundits would have us believe that that's all God has ever been, a cosmic screen for human projections against a vast sea of unknowing. If that were all we believed, I should not be standing here today and you should not be sitting there either. Despite our limitations, we do assert certain truths arise from the mysterious origins of life that make certain claims on us. Still, at best, we know only in part and the part we know is often less than crystal clear Sometimes we do project our own biases onto God. Sometimes we do that. How could it be otherwise, given that we do it to one another all of the time? 
One of the primary reasons we cannot be healthy spiritual beings apart from a mature faith community is precisely because of our tendencies to get carried away with our own individual stuff. And I realize that as a preacher, you indulge my opinions on many things, but I'm mindful that my word is not the final word, and it only finds life as it engages the hearts and minds of all of you, as though at the end of it we are really in a dialogue. And as a matter of course, many of you will reflexively share your opinions and faith with me, which is all to the good. That's how we hold one another accountable. So thinking long and hard together about the story we hear on this most dramatic day in the Christian year, we can only deduce that humans are at best extremely fickle. We are very, very prone to self-deception. As I described not so long ago, a self-righteous man says he must kill the leader of his nation, which has as one of its ten basic principles, thou shalt not kill, or read more closely, thou shalt not murder. And he does this in order to promote his own political agenda. And as we heard today, on another day, two millennia ago, in the same city of Jerusalem, another pious man determines he must betray his friend into the hands of his enemies to execute a plan that will topple the oppressive government. Or was it only for the bounty of silver coins? As that story is told, however, as you heard it this morning, Judas isn't the only conspirator. By the end, everyone conspires in Jesus' death. His closest friends flee. Crowds intoxicated by the smell of blood replace the jubilant crowds who received him just a few days earlier. The colonial oppressive government, desiring nothing more than maintenance of established power arrangements, sentences an innocent man to death under the pretense of justice. The whole depressing story is a tissue of lies, deceptions, and cowardice. There are no heroes standing in the wings in this story, are there? And there is no one at all who stands outside the proceedings. This story continues to speak with such great power because we are able to read ourselves into it. When we're honest, I mean, really honest, we know that we have the same movement for good and evil, for life and death within us. None of us is exempt from this human condition. Each one of us falls short of some idealized version of ourselves. We can hope and pray and work to become more alive to that which brings life. I mean, that's why we gather in places like this year after year, isn't it? But we never completely sever our relationship to dark motives. I know that I don't. Friends, to lose connection with this truth 
puts us and those we love at great peril. Then we can do real damage. That's part of the universal character of the story. Everyone is a participant. This is not necessarily a happy truth to behold. But in beholding it, we paradoxically discover a powerful hope. The story is told of a man who came home drunk after a night of carousing in a number of neighborhood bars. His pious wife received him at the door as he stumbled in and she helped him into the bedroom, helped him to undress, tucked him into bed. Then she kneeled at his bedside and whispered into his ear, John, do you want me to say a prayer for you? And he nodded a bleary yes, and she began to pray. Dear Lord, I, I pray for my husband, John, who lies here before you drunk. And he interrupts her. She, he, he says, no, 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 no. Don't tell him I'm drunk. <laughs> Just say... I'm a little sick. We are, every one of us, dissemblers before God. Every one of us. And before that, we are dissemblers before ourselves. Always in some disguise always pretending, never quite fully exposed, hiding our true identity, projecting an image of ourselves for mass consumption, often propping up ourselves by putting others down, thank you very much. There is, friends, a sense in which we are ashamed of our humanity. That is our individual experience of it. Ashamed that we aren't quite what we would like to be. That we aren't exactly what we project. Ashamed or, or perhaps angry that our lives are what they are at any given moment. It's not uncommon for us to project our shame onto others. In fact, I would tell you, from my position of talking with hundreds of people over the years, that is what we always do. We project our shame onto others and make them wear the clothes we don't like in our own personal closets and then exile them from our circles of inclusion. Isn't that what all of the social isms and phobias are about? Chances are pretty good that if we're feeling inherently superior to others, we've managed to close those others in our discards. I love this bit of wisdom phrased by Annie Lamott. You can safely assume that you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Jesus played against type as a divine messenger, didn't he? And at the end of it, what was he but a failure as far as the world was concerned? A has-been, a coulda, woulda, shoulda been. What a convenient mannequin for everyone's closets of shame and failure and fear. Put him to death! 
And then just maybe all of those secret parts of us will die as well. But paradoxically, even shockingly, for an entirely different reason, that is exactly the potential in this crucifixion. Not by our own doing, but by God's, our deceit, our shame, our failure, our fear, can all be buried with this man. For as you heard Paul say, he was pleased to leave his place of splendor to become one of us, emptying himself so that he might fill himself with our fickle humanity and allow our frailty to die with him as life drained from his body. That is the mystery we proclaim. It sounds both preposterous and too good to be true. You mean I don't have to continue to pretend? That I can actually be free of my fear and anger? That I can put aside my blustering arrogance? That I actually have the real opportunity to rise into the full height of my humanity and become the person God has intended from the beginning? Isn't it too late to learn love's lessons? Haven't I been at it too long? Dug in too many ruts? And the answer that rings down through the ages is no, it is not too late. It is not too late. It is never too late. It is exactly the right time. If we empty ourselves like Jesus did, if we allow our minds to share in his humility, friends, this is the promise, if we do that, we will rise with him on Easter. That is the absolute heart of faith.